0: to chapter 17 with me revelation 17 as we continue in our Wednesday night study of this great book vision given to the apostle John as he was on the island of patmos actually before you turn there <laughs> with your finger in revelation 17 turn to 1st John chapter 2 for a moment You don't have to go very far, but by way of introduction, I want to read just a few verses from 1 John 2 that have to do really with the theme of what we're going to look at tonight, beginning in verse 15 specifically, having just declared to us in the previous three verses, John, the author even of Our book that we come to study tonight, Revelation, having just said that as children of God we've overcome the evil one, here in 1 John 2, notice verse 15. John gives us, you probably know these verses, one of the most direct warnings about worldliness and loving the world that the Bible has to offer. You know it well. He says, do not love the world... Or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever, but notice he says, children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared, from this we know that it is the last hour. I don't know if you've ever connected that last verse with those previous verses, but it's interesting to me here, in light of our passage this evening, you can flip back to Revelation 17, that, that the very same author, the Apostle John, here in in, in first. John 2 deliberately associates, connects the passing away of the world with the coming of the Antichrist. Ever notice that in that text? And not only that, but it is also the same Apostle John who will go on in that same letter, 1 John 5, verse 19, to say that the whole world is indeed. It lies in the power and the influence of the evil one, Satan himself. I have to ask you this this evening before we even begin to look at Revelation chapter 17, do you believe that? And as you look around this world, and I I know many of us maybe think things are getting worse and worse, but it's not as bad as it could be, right? And you can still go to the Tanglewood Festivals of Lights. <laughs> when You look around this world, you, you, you think about the society that we live in, though we do mourn over some things that seem to be taking a turn for the worse. It is a temptation, isn't it, to imagine? The, but, but the world is not as bad as the Bible says it is. So we have to ask the question this evening, do you believe that this world in which you live, Winston-Salem, North
1: Carolina, is really under the control of Satan? And that, that it is doomed to be
0: destroyed in connection with the coming of the Antichrist? Do you believe that? that your perspective on the world? It's hard, though, to think of it in such stark terms, though, isn't it? If we're honest, that all that is in the world is under the power and influence of satanic and demonic forces of evil. After all, I mean, this is still the world of the Red Cross, the Make-A-Wish Foundation, the Hallmark Channel, Walt <laughs> Disney World... The Humane Society, the Macy's Day Parade, not to mention Elon Musk's SpaceX expeditions. What about all those people in the world who are still valiantly fighting for our American rights and freedoms, who champion conservative politics and give to charities and adopt stray dogs? I mean, is the world really that bad if? Governor DeSantis can win Florida by a landslide. (laughs) What about my unbelieving neighbors who actually seem like really nice people and even have a better family dynamic so it seems from the outside looking in than I did growing up? You see, for all these superficial reasons and more, we can be tempted at times to wonder, can't we? Is the world really that bad? Is it as bad as the Bible says that it is? Well, we have our answer in Revelation 17, because as we turn our attention to the next really couple of chapters in Revelation, as John is given more of this vision of things to come, and I believe that that John is given these two chapters specifically for this very purpose, to remind us, Christians to remind us of what will always be fundamentally true about this fallen world that we live in. And we see it in high definition in these two chapters. We're only going to cover, of course, chapter 17, but in case we are tempted to forget the warning that John himself gave us in 1 John 2, In case we begin to forget what the world is truly like from a spiritual perspective that it is opposed to God and that it is on its way to certain destruction here in Revelation 17 and 18, there's no mistaking it as God in these two chapters, here's what he does for us. He pulls the mask off completely on the world system. He pulls the mask off. He 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 shows to John and to us that what the world is really like and where an unredeemed, fallen culture is really headed.
1: This is where it's going. At this point in the book of Revelation, by the time the bold
0: judgments, as we read last week, are poured out, it is clear that God's restraining grace is No longer in the picture that his restraining grace has been fully removed. The facade of this world has come down. The curtain is pulled back. And what is underneath the surface is finally exposed. And we're given a glimpse of the world as it truly exists. It's not a pretty picture. You know, I'm not a fan of conspiracy theories, (laughs) but I do have to admit, after reading this chapter, there there must be some truth, however small, behind every conspiracy theory if 1 John 5.19 means anything, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do you believe that? I do believe that Satan is at work in this world that he's deceiving and maneuvering and manipulating and influencing politics and cultures and governments and societies. That is true and our chapter makes that evident. So we find out in our passage tonight that there is coming a day listen Right before the judgment, the final judgment of Christ, when evil in society will no longer lurk in the shadows and seek to be subtle or be hidden or be glossed over, but rather it will strut itself around proudly in broad daylight we will read in these two chapters of a political platform of the popular party that is purely evil, and there's no hiding it. It it will no longer try to cover up murder by calling it health care or women's rights. It will no longer need to hide behind blue tape and bureaucracy. Here in our chapter, we're going to see the rule of the Antichrist come to full fruition. The government world system will be evil. Society will be evil. Culture will be evil. Politics will be evil. There will be no, listen, there will be no separation between church and state and that won't be a good thing. Both will be fully united with one mind against the Lord and against his Holy One. That is what we see In these verses, there is coming a time, beloved, spoken of here in Revelation 17 and 18 when the world will be so corrupt that it will be impossible to be in the world and not of it. Have you heard that before? There's coming a day when God, just look at chapter 18. I know that's not our chapter, but look at chapter 18, verse 4. There is coming a day in this society when it will be impossible to be in the world and not of the world. And so God will call his people to come out, to come out of her so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. That's how bad it will be. So where does where do these two chapters, though, fit into the larger picture of what we've been studying? Revelation 17 and 18 fill this gap, so to speak, if you remember from last time, be, between John's account of the bold judgments that are pour, poured out in chapter 16 that Danny covered, and then what comes in chapter 19? Well, the return of Christ, what we want to get to, right, where he comes and he... And he destroys all of his enemies, the Battle of Armageddon, the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. 17 and 18 fill this gap between the bull judgments, the summary of them, and the, re- the account of Christ's return to defeat his enemies in chapter 19. These two chapters are really a pause, and we've seen that a lot in Revelation, right? They're a pause in the chronology to give us a fuller, more detailed picture The judgment, listen, that God will bring upon the sinful capital city and culture of the Antichrist, which is called Babylon the Great here, which has only, up until now, been briefly mentioned in two small verses, right? If you're taking notes, remember, chapter 14, verse 8, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And it just kind of came out of nowhere, and you're thinking, well, what is that? And then... Last week, chapter 16, verse
1: 19. We saw a reference to this city as well. So now,
0: John fills, fills in the gaps for us. These chapters make it clear that not only are unbelieving individuals who've hardened their hearts and refused to repent Deserving of God's final and severe judgment. Remember, we saw that three times last week in chapter 16, verse 9, verse 11, and verse 21. We saw that that, that sinful individuals, the men who were experiencing the judgment of God, still refused to repent and dig in their heels. And so they deserved God's wrath. But here not only do the individuals deserve God's wrath, so does the culture. So does the culture. The whole world in this sinful global culture is in these two chapters represented by this great harlot that John sees. Notice chapter 17, verse 1. He sees this great harlot. This angel shows him. And then if you flip to the end of this chapter, verse 18 identifies her, this woman, this harlot as the great city, which is, as we find out in verse 5 here, named Babylon. All of that just as background for just to help you understand what we're about to dive into. This Babylon is the centralized location, as we said before in our study, of the Antichrist's power and influence over the entire pagan world, where he will reign from for a short while over the kings of the earth. That's what we're talking about. So tonight, here's your outline. We'll be reminded from our passage as we walk through this of three fundamental truths about this fallen world in which we live. They're, these truths are evident in the text. They're evident of this final evil culture in Babylon. They're typified in her. And yet they're still true of the world today. Three fundamental truths we're going to see. We're going to be reminded of what characterizes the world We're going to be reminded of
1: who controls the world. And we're going to be reminded of who conquers the world. Let's begin first.
0: And notice the truth about what characterizes this fallen world, verses 1 through 6. Now, there are going to be six characteristics I'll try to draw out here from these verses of the fallen world. It's going to be where we spend uh most of our time so don't don't freak out when we you know get to the, uh, verse 6 and we and it's you know 45 minutes in so i warned you ahead of time but notice verse 1 then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying come here i will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many Waters. Now first, I want you to see here this first characteristic that this fallen
1: world, John is told, is doomed to certain judgment. This world has a shelf life. Christian, it
0: is set to expire at a time in which God has appointed Acts 17.31, Paul declared it to the Athenians in Mars Hill that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the fate of this world has already been determined by God. The fate is so certain that back in chapter 14, verse 8, like I said already, it's already been declared by John, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It's that sure. This world, Christian, has an expiration date stamped upon it by the Lord himself. Look, I know there are some well-meaning Christians who teach that it is the job of the church to reclaim the culture, to redeem certain elements of our society, and, and they believe that if we could just get Christians into political places of power, then we can slowly turn this world around, make it a better place, and somehow usher in Christ's return. That is just not what the Bible teaches here. In fact, if you want to put your finger here and turn over just a few chapters to Revelation 21, I want you to look at this. Because this is deliberate by John. Revelation 21, verses 9 and 10 Is a direct contrast to this world that is passing away. And John is very deliberate about it there. Notice Revelation 21, verses 9 and 10. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Sound familiar? Saying, same formula. Listen, come here, I will show you. Same exact language as 17 verse 1. But this time, what does
1: he show John? Not a harlot, but a bride. The wife of the lamb. And he
0: carried me away in the spirit, and this time not to the wilderness to see a harlot as the city of Babylon, but to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, which was
1: transformed from Babylon. It's not what he says. Coming down out of heaven from God.
0: Look back to verses one and two of that same chapter. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's your shelf life. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Do you see the contrast now, back to chapter 17, between the harlot and the bride? The one is destroyed, the other is made new, and it comes down out of heaven. Listen, God's purpose was never to reclaim this culture. This world is destined for destruction. And God is going to, by his own doing, replace it with his pure and
1: holy city, a perfect culture. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? It's going to be incredible. It's going to be nothing like, be nothing like this world system. I mean, look, this is why John
0: can write in First John 2, the world is passing away. My friend, do not love the world or the things of the world. Notice second characteristic. Not only is the world doomed to certain judgment, notice this fallen world is popular. Now, those two things don't go together, do they? (laughs) If you're paying attention, but it's... Notice, the harlot of the great city of Babylon that John has shown here is described in language that is similar to the Babylon of old in Jerusalem, or in Jeremiah, Fifty-one, verse thirteen: Who dwells? Who dwells by many waters? You see that here. The language is: She sits on many waters. How do we get popular from that? Well, the 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 picture here of an ancient city, and in even Babylon itself sat. "...on the Euphrates and its location on many waters gave it access to the vast system water system, making it a perfect hub to influence the world by exporting its culture through trade and economics." That's the, that's the idea here. And MacArthur observes the metaphor is an apt one, since a city situated in a commanding position on a great waterway would be highly influential... And that is true, right? In fact, if you read ahead to verse 15, just look ahead to verse 15, this, this interpretation is confirmed to us by the angel's explanation of this vision given to John. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. In other words, this Babylon has a global fame. It has international recognition. It has cross-cultural influence on a multitude of people. It is popular.
1: The world is that way, isn't it? Think about this connection then with the
0: first characteristic here. Though the world is headed for destruction. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? We can marvel at this as Christians. Though the world is headed for destruction, multitudes of people still
1: remain on that boat. This is the broad road. Jesus spoke
0: of Matthew 7, remember? The gate is wide, the way is broad, that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. The world is popular. I mean, don't you hate the fact that the truth, those who ascribe to it, Christians are
1: a minority? Look, but that's how it's always been. Third characteristic of the fallen world, third, this fallen world is full of false worship. Notice
0: verse 2. With this harlot, the kings of the earth, John sees or is told, committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. The angel now tells John explicitly why she's to be judged, why this harlot, why this culture, why this Babylon is to be judged, because she has used her popularity and her influence not to make God's name great, but to seduce the nations into false worship into idolatry. Immorality here, I think, is probably not to be taken literally as a specific kind of sexual sin that these kings were committing with the city, though no doubt there was probably much of that going on, but rather... In keeping with the imagery and the metaphor of a harlot representing the city, this is more likely John's way of referring to the spiritual adultery and religious idolatry that this capital city of Babylon propagates and leads the nations in and influences them towards. Look, false religion will rule the day and it will go
1: out to all the world from this center of culture. The picture of a harlot
0: is common imagery used in the Bible to speak of unfaithfulness to God in worship. Israel more than once in the Old Testament is said to have played the harlot and gone after other gods. That's what John is seeing here. James 4 verse 4 uses the same imagery and it calls those who are friends with
1: the world, remember, remember what he calls them, adulteresses. Isn't it interesting, think
0: about this, that people today will often declare themselves to be atheists and yet will at the same time characterize themselves as spiritual? You ever scratch your head at that? My friends, I don't care what people say, we all worship something. We, we are religious By our very nature, there's no such thing as a truly atheistic culture. And that is going to be true in those days. The world will be steeped in false worship. And it will be the culture of the Antichrist will be very good at evangelizing the masses to anything but the true Christ. So this culture is doomed to certain judgment. It's popular. It's full of false worship forth. This fallen world is under satanic influence. This is true still of today. Notice verse 3, though, what it's going to look like, what John sees. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten See here, John is carried away to a desolate place where the angel now shows him the harlot of Babylon, who he's been describing. And John sees her, and the vision is so disturbing that verse six tells us that he wondered greatly. It literally he he was he he was astonished at a great astonishment. It indicates his shock and awe at such a repulsive. Side. And it's possible that part of John's astonishment comes because he expects, remember what, he expects to see a woman sitting where? On many waters. But as he turns and looks, he sees her instead sitting on a hideous, seven-headed, ten-horned beast. Have we seen this beast before? It's the same beast that shows up in chapter 13. This is none other than the Antichrist to whom is given the power and authority of Satan. You remember? Love, do you do you realize that Satan is behind every false religion and every false idol ever invented and worshipped by men? You realize that? There's there's no such thing as Allah or Buddha or Zeus or Poseidon. Every other religion outside of Orthodox Christianity and the worship of the one true God is ultimately the worship
1: of Satan and the work of demons. That is what John sees here. Behind
0: and underneath and undergirding and supporting and grounding this world culture of false religion is the Antichrist. here John finally sees who's really pulling the strings behind the curtain. Babylon is Satan's puppet. The description here of the Antichrist is the same as in chapter 13, verse 1, with ten horns and seven heads and blasphemous names. Except here, notice there is something added. We're given an additional detail of the color of this beast. And you say, well, big deal. But it is scarlet, the color and the stain of sin. You think of Isaiah 1 verse 18, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Just listen to that contrast. In contrast... Now think about this, pull that contrast into Revelation, chapter 19, verse 11, what does Christ come riding but a white horse? John sees the harlot of Babylon sitting on a scarlet beast, what a contrast. Take this image to heart and remember the next time you're tempted, Christian, to
1: love the world.
0: The unbelieving world, the culture that we live in, is not neutral. It is hell-bent. It is satanically empowered. The fifth characteristic of this fallen world is it's attractive and it's deceptive. It's attractive and deceptive. Notice verse 4, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality.
1: Notice how Babylon is described here as wealthy
0: and affluent and luxurious as the result of her sin and immorality. I mean I mean this this is Isn't this Psalm 73 all over again? Asaph looking around at the wicked people saying, man, they they don't have
1: to worry about a thing. They've got a great life. She is both
0: royalty purple, that's the color purple, and she's guilty, that's the color scarlet. She's dressed as extravagantly as she sins, You could say she's the queen of sinners and she makes it look good. Her attire is appealing, it is enticing, and her cup, not to mention her cup, is beautiful, it's attractive, but it's full of deadly poison. My friends, this is the deceptive nature of the world and of sin and of idolatry, is it not? It it has a veneer Of goodness and glamour, but on the inside it is as rotten and detestable as a dead carcass. Notice what John says fills her cup. It is full of abominations, which is a classic Old Testament term for idols, and unclean things. These are, as one commentator says, blasphemous activities that God detests, and the harlot's cup is full of them. And yet the fact that they are in her cup tells us she is
1: gladly drinking deeply of them. I mean, it's a gross picture, isn't it? Little does she realize she will soon drink the cup of God's wrath. Chapter 16, verse 19.
0: But this is the blindness and the deceitfulness of sin. This is still true in the world, isn't it? It looks attractive. I and mean, why are so many people on that path?
1: It looks good. <laughs> no hardships. Don't be deceived. Don't love the world. It's satanically influenced, but it's deceptive.
0: Last characteristic we can pull out here, verses 5 and 6. The fallen world is hostile to Christ. This should be a no-brainer to us. Notice verses 5 and 6, and on her forehead a name was written, a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the, of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. You see, in contrast now with those who John saw earlier with the seal of God on their foreheads, marking to whom they belong and whom their allegiance is given to, here this harlot who represents the world as Babylon, it has Babylon written on her forehead. The enemy of God. And she is out to make other enemies of God. And, and much like her namesake, John sees now that in that day she will be famous for, for her killing of God's people. Being being drunk with blood here depicts not just an isolated incident or two of persecution that got out of hand for a moment but then was reined back in real quick by the civil authorities, right? That's it's not with this pictures actually. Because in that day the civil authorities will hate Christ. Very blatantly, very openly. No, rather at this point in time, the the tail end of the tribulation, this is the culture, this is where it's headed, this is where the world will end up. The world will have no more inhibitions. There will be no conscience in the culture to stop or to slow down the murder of Christians. Christians of those who love Christ, who are devoted to him, who witness for him. They will have an insatiable lust for the death of all those who love Jesus. The world's hatred for all things godly will be very obvious in that day. But listen, Christian, it is
1: still fundamentally true right now of the world. Don't, don't be deceived. The world doesn't love the church or the things of God. We need to remember that. I think sometimes we forget
0: that. I think sometimes we imagine we can make them like us. We can make them love us if we do this or we snuggle up to them here. <laughs> do not be deceived. Beloved, this is fundamentally true of the unbelieving world. It is not friendly to Christ or the things of Christ. What fellowship is light with darkness? That doesn't mean we hate them back. But I'm just telling you, don't be deceived. Don't imagine that they are interested in the things that you're interested in. So this is what characterizes the world. The world is doomed to certain judgment, yet somehow it is popular. The world is full of false worship and it's under satanic influence and it is deceivingly attractive, yet it is hostile to Christ. All of those things are true today. Let's be reminded of them from this picture of where this world is headed. Look, this this is what... This is the world unmasked in the end. But these are all in seed form in our culture, in our day. So that's what we're reminded in this passage of the truth about what characterizes the world. But notice more quickly now these last two truths. We're also reminded in this passage of the truth about who controls the world. The truth about who controls the world, and we touched on this already a little bit, but the answer here is actually twofold. One of which, the first of which we've already alluded to. Notice first, we'll start with the most obvious, as we've already said, it is true that Satan, Satan in some measure, to some extent, has been given control over this world. Let's not forget that. As we read, 1 John 5, 19, the world lies in the lap and the power of the evil one. But his control is not absolute, as we'll see here in a moment. But but nevertheless, he does have a kind of dominion over this world. This becomes obvious here as the angel now begins to interpret for John what he saw. Look at verse 7. Revelation 17, verse 7, and the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And I love when the Bible does this, right? You're scratching your head, trying to figure out the imagery, and and here comes God through an angel saying, I'll tell you what that means. (laughs) Wish you'd do that more often, right? But notice, remember how from John's vantage point in verse 3, when he first sees this vision, he wrote, remember, what did he write? I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. That's not what the angel says. When the angel goes to interpret it for him, and the angel says, no, here's how you should see this. This is the perspective you need to have, right? And it's significant that the angel Corrects John's interpretation and says here actually, it is the beast that's carrying the woman.
1: There's a difference, right? This tells us definitively that it is the
0: beast who is in control of this woman. Not the other way around. She's not riding him like a domesticated animal. Instead, he is taking her wherever
1: he wishes, and she's just along for the ride. Like Satan
0: is Ephesians 2, verse 2, the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The world culture belongs to him in this sense. It's under his influence. It's under his control. He's been given dominion over it, and he's working through this world with all of his power and influence to turn those who dwell upon the earth against their creator.
1: And he's very good at it. Do you believe that? You know, we should be reminded here that the
0: world, again, it's not neutral. But notice notice verse 8. Notice the tactics, the schemes, you could say, that Satan uses to control the world, right? These are the strings that he pulls. Notice, notice what it is in that day. Verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Now what's, what's what's going on here? What is, what is John seeing? As you can imagine, there's quite a lot of debate as to what this means, that the beast was and it is not and is about to come. As you can hear, it's, it's even a play on um, God's own character, right? who was and is and is to come but it's but it's not that precisely it's a it's a it's a fake version of that and without getting lost in the details the different arguments i think the best explanation of this is that this is a reference to the antichrist's pseudo-death and resurrection that we saw earlier in chapter 13. You remember? If you don't remember, go back and read that. We don't have time to cover that. But in chapter 13, the beast appears to receive a fatal wound to the head, but then seemingly comes back to life, causing many who dwell on the earth to worship him, right? You remember that? He fakes, he mimics, he apes. Christ and his work his death and resurrection, and deceives many, and so the language here is that he was he comes into power, then he dies and is not, and then he comes back out of the abyss and causes many to marvel at him and then worship and serve him. I think that's what 's going on here, and the point here is this this is. This is how
1: he gets the world to bow to him. He deceives them.
0: Isn't it interesting here that John includes you? it is those whose names, who, who are deceived. It's, it's those who's, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. It's not those who are more gullible. It's those who aren't in Christ who will be deceived and controlled by the Antichrist in those days. That's so comforting, isn't it? Beloved, if you belong to Christ, if your name has been written in the book of life, Satan has no control over you. You have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. You know, we... We, we are so anxious at times, right? We get these questions as pastors. Well, can demons can demons possess us? I mean, can, can we be influenced and, and ultimately controlled by Satan somehow in this life? And, uh, you know, we get so anxious about that. Look, if your name has been written in the book of
1: life, you don't need to worry about that.
0: I love that. We get so anxious about the activity of Satan even now in this world. My dear friend, if he can't control you then,
1: you have nothing to worry about now. You are saved in the arms of Christ. You belong to him.
0: So what and who does Satan control in this world? Notice the extent of this control then. It's the unbelieving people, of course, who dwell in the earth. But notice verses Nine and following here is the mind which has wisdom now, anytime you read that you know you, you we read earlier that hey, the angel's going to tell us what this means, and we were encouraged by that, but then you read this, and this is this is the angel's way of saying what i 'm about to tell you is really hard to understand <laughs> and it is true it 's not easy to 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 figure out, but notice let's let 's try and do it because we have this responsibility look notice what he says the heaven the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits and they are seven kings five have fallen one is and the other has not yet come are you doing the math yet and when he comes, that is this one that hasn't come yet, this last one, the seventh one, he must remain a little while. And the beast which was and is not is himself also and eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. Now, like I said, it's it may be difficult to understand, but let, let me help you. The angel Now seeks to explain the imagery of this seven headed, ten horned beast who is the Antichrist, and he begins with the seven heads. So ignore the ten horns for now. He begins with the seven heads. He tells John that they are, the seven heads are both mountains and yet they're kings. Okay? So already we've got two pictures in our mind mountains. And kings. Now, it helps us to know that mountains in the Old Testament were often used to represent kingdoms. So that makes sense. I think it's safe in that sense, in that context, then to conclude that these seven heads then are seven kings and their kingdoms. Okay, Following me so far? Seven kings and their kingdoms that are all associated with this world system of the Antichrist because the harlot is sitting on all of them. But notice the angel adds, five have fallen, one is, and the other has yet to come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Now, if we are correct, then in thinking and interpreting these heads as kings and their kingdoms, then the angel is saying that five of those kingdoms and their kings have come and gone. One is currently in power at the time of John's writing and recording this vision, which would have been the Roman Empire and Caesar as its king, right? And one is yet still future to come, which will have, notice here, a relatively short lifespan compared to these other ones. So then if we count backwards from the Roman Empire, we might perhaps conclude that the five kingdoms that have fallen are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. But that's not really the focus. John's focus is no doubt here upon this last one, which is yet to come. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 tells us that this seventh king and kingdom, which will remain for just a short while, will be the kingdom of the Antichrist himself, who was and who will die while in power or perhaps feign his death and will come back again as an eighth ruler before he goes to destruction at the return of Christ. I think that's what he's saying. what What do we take away from all of that? Listen, Satan has been working behind the scenes throughout all of world history to consolidate his power into this final one godless antichrist regime so that he can come against Christ one last time.
1: And the angel explains to John in this vision that one day it will happen. Do you believe that, Christian? It will get worse before it gets better. In fact, this becomes clear
0: in the angel's explanation then of the ten horns. So now enter the ten horns. Look at verses 12 and 13. Notice the culmination of Satan's control of the world. Here is the culmination. We've seen his schemes, how he controls. We've seen the extent throughout history and behind nations and kingdoms. Here is the culmination. This is what it's all barreling after and towards, verses 12 and 13. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who've, who've not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. And these have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. Now, apparently... John is told by this angel that in a final push to gain control over the world, Satan's kingdom will come to fruition in the form of an alliance of ten kings, ten kingdoms, during the time of the Great Tribulation. And these ten kings will voluntarily then give up their power and authority to the Antichrist because, notice, collectively, they hate God with a singular passion. They are of one mind. They are united in their hostility against the truth,
1: against their creator, against the Almighty, who is, mind you, smiting them with all kinds of judgments. They will foolishly believe. Hey, with our powers combined, <laughs> maybe we can maybe we can take the, maybe we can take him on. And so they give their power and authority
0: to the Antichrist. They hope in this one that they believe maybe has the power. Why? Because they've seen him die and rise again. Right? They're deceived by his. Pseudo-death and resurrection, they put their hopes in him. He's the anti-Messiah.
1: And yet, it's amazing, did you notice? John
0: records that all of hell's fury in that day will last for one hour. I don't know if this is literally one hour. I mean, I I think it's probably figurative. But but, but what we do know is that that's not a long time. John says, look, this corresponds with the statement earlier at the end of verse 10 that
1: the, the Antichrist's reign will only last a little while, right? And when the time is up, Revelation 11 verse 15 says, The kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Because while it is true that to an extent Satan
0: controls the world, John is equally clear here, still under your second point, that God is ultimately in control of this world. Yes, Satan has some dominion, but God is ultimately in control. This is our Father's world. It doesn't belong to Satan. Satan's control is a delegated authority. And notice how this becomes obvious to us then in verses 16 and 17. And the ten horns which you saw John says, and the angel tells John, and the beast, these, these, the ten horns and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. What is is going on here? The angel tells John that there is coming a day at the end of this period when Satan will consume... The very world system that once served him, that he used to get his place of power. That when he returns from the dead, right, to take control over all the world, not even Babylon, the great city, will stand in his way. He will seek to consolidate his power, to exalt himself and himself alone. And in that day, the puppet of this world as depicted by this harlot that John sees will be devoured. And all you will see in its place is the ruling hand of the beast and of the Antichrist. All the forms and vestiges of this world, of cultures and governments throughout the ages will at last be discarded by the Antichrist. Christ, thrown to the wayside by the beast, the final form of the Antichrist's rule will be a supreme dictatorship and a worship of his own personality.
1: And yet, what John says next is
0: absolutely astounding. Look at verse 17. What is the ultimate cause? What is the cause of this consolidation of power to the Antichrist in the most
1: wicked government system that the earth has ever seen? The angel tells us, for God has put it in their hearts
0: to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. Listen, if you don't believe in the sovereignty
1: of God, you cannot explain that verse. God will have put it in their hearts
0: so that he can put it to an end. Here we read that it is God ultimately, it is His will, it is His purposes that all of the world's powers serve. That one day, even though the beast will have his kingdom, it will be God who will be carrying out His good and perfect plan through all of that
1: evil so that the word of God might be fulfilled. Christian, be comforted by that.
0: Don't stress, don't be anxious over the loss of an election because,
1: ah, my party didn't win. But they're evil. Yes. And God is in control. And he is working things out to his purpose. And he will one day
0: put an end to that evil. Finally, fully. And this reminds me of the amazing statement that Peter makes in Acts chapter 4. You remember when uh, verses 27 and 28 for speaking of the crucifixion of
1: the Son of God? Was that evil? Yeah. Peter says, For truly
0: in this city there are were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, though, whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. It's the same thing here. Gathered together against God and his anointed one, the kings of the earth the Antichrist, and all of his evil and wickedness and power
1: in this final, one-world, corrupt alliance. And yet God is behind it.
0: God is in control, beloved, even in the midst of the most wicked regime that you can think of. Even in the midst of the greatest evil, the greatest offense against His holy name, it doesn't you know? For set aside the problem of evil that we come up with sometimes theologically. Okay, God does not endorse that evil. Let's just be clear there, right? But He is in control still, and doesn't that give you comfort? Wouldn't
1: you prefer that over a God who cannot control evil? world is not out of control, the world is not only in Satan's control, the world is Satan's pawn and Satan is God's pawn. Let us trust the Lord and when we think elections
0: are rigged, political outcomes seem to take a turn for the worse, let us trust in God. Remember the truth of who is in control about this world. But finally, last point there, remember
1: also the truth about who conquers this world. You'll notice I skipped verse 14 intentionally. And we'll just end here.
0: Revelation 17, verse 14. These, that is the beast and the ten kings of the earth, and all their fury and all their might and all their power and all their authority with all that they can muster will wage war against the lamb. And I just love how to the point John is here. And the lamb will overcome them.
1: He wins. Period. Hands down. No contest. Why? Because he's Lord of Lords and he's King of Kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. Christian, this Antichrist world alliance will go to war against the Lamb, but John puts it simply the Lamb will overcome them. Christ has overcome the world. There's no competition.
0: Did you notice how the verse ends? Not only does the lamb overcome them, but so do those who are with the lamb. That's, so, that's, that's incredible for us to read. Like, victory belongs not only to the lamb, but also to those who are with the lamb. Revelation 14, verse
1: 1. Let me ask you tonight, are you with the lamb? Have you overcome the world? Dear Christian, if
0: you are in Christ, greater is he who's in you than he who is in the world, 1 John 4.4. 4. Be comforted by Jesus' words, John 16, verse 33. In the world, look, you're going to have tribulation. Look, we, we, we've saw it, we saw it tonight. The world is not for you. You will have tribulation, but take courage, Christian. Christ has overcome the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this text and we're riveted just by this picture of the end. How convicting it is to us when we chase after the things of this world, when we imagine that we can find fulfillment and hope and belonging and comfort from these things that you have said will pass away. Lord, forgive us. Cause us to look upon Christ to find our hope and sufficiency in Him. And Lord, if there aren't those here who have yet to do so, who actually love this world and this world is their home, and Lord, may you you convict them While it is still today, before this this season comes, Lord, may they come to know you, the Lamb of God, who has taken away the sins of the world, your people. May they trust in him and be found in him so that one day they can stand with him in victory over this world. We thank you for tonight and for your word. We pray that you would bless it to to us and cause us to be not merely hearers of it, but also doers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.